0: With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these
1: sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Thanks for listening today. It means a whole lot to me that you're here. And really, that is more than enough. You can also support the show, avoid the ads, and gain access to the Discord, where we record our live Team Human salons by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. It's also the best way to get direct answers or advice from me on whatever you're working on. Think of it as office hours. My efforts to answer every email and look at everyone's great proposals for co-ops, social networks, books, schools, farms, art collaboratives, alternative currencies, VR experiences has just proved too much. Everybody should take heart. My inbox attests to the fact that there are thousands of people developing terrific things even if i can't weigh in on or support every one of them i'm hoping people can find the others meaning each other on the team human discord and then use the salons for us to interact directly On Team Human, conscious intervention in the machine—an opportunity to challenge the conventionally unconventional wisdom of our tech-emboldened elites and replace their counterintuitive insights with some coherent, grounded intuition. Our best access to the future may be right here, right now, in the present. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today author of Human Extinction, a History of the Science and Ethics of Annihilation, and newly minted PhD, Dr. Emil P. Torres. This post-human world in which
2: we become immortal super-beings and have total control over our emotions, and we literally live, as Nick Boster put it in his letter from Utopia, in surpassing bliss and delight. I mean, it's really at the core of the whole test bundle.
1: Emil and I are going to talk about the mindset they call tescriol, transhumanism, extropianism, singularitarianism, cosmism, rationalism, effective altruism, and long-termism. Yes, it's time to intervene on behalf of people and all living things. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. I've been treading a lot of unfamiliar head and heart space lately engaging with a few different kinds of hopelessness both on the personal and macro level and while i see the efficacy of logical engineered solutions to problems i'm also becoming painfully aware of how each engineered solution creates more problems you know the kinds of things I'm talking about, like um, antibiotics, right? They're, they're great. They Antibiotics, they cured a lot of things or solved a lot of problems. But as we know, when you use antibiotics, you wipe out your gut biome and have other problems. Or you create antibiotic-resistant strains of diseases that are then worse than the ones we were fighting to begin with. Our uh, automobiles, they look great at the time, right? We won't have to, you know... To, torture the horses and use them and have them pooping all over the place. We can have these clean vehicles, use a little oil and they buzz around. They look great. They they didn't know at the time it would lead to, to, you know, oil depletion and pollution and suburbs and uh, oil wars and all sorts of other stuff. Or digital technology, right? I was there in the 90s. It looked great at the time. We thought it was going to expand human awareness and consciousness and connection and togetherness and allow people to see things and wire up the global brain and create new systems. It still might, right? But boy, what are we seeing? It certainly creates a host of problems we've spoken about uh, many different weeks on this show, right? The the other way of of doing this, though, uh, the, the the kind of the 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 permaculture or gut biome or or challenging the very structure of a society that requires people to own vehicles in order to get to their place of employment or even entertainment um, that's that's subtle it almost requires a uh, a softening of focus what Some people are calling, you know, uh, an indigenous perspective. But it may be more easily understood just as a more cooperative, uh, collaborative, resonant, less engineered or solved and more actually heard and adapted to or even fostered. And I've started working this way in... In my own life, so if there's a, if there's a problem, I, I'm trying to use you know some kind of compromise here. You can't just go cold turkey on engineered solutions or big pharma or anything else. But there's kind of this this thing. My my favorite uh, chiropractor healer, rest his soul, may his name be a blessing. Mark Filippi, i um, used to talk about. He would say this time, meantime, and next time. So it's like this time you're really sick with an infection, you're going to use the antibiotic. In the meantime you 're going to start uh, you know taking care of your your gut biome or your body differently you 're going to increase your immune response and your immune system so that next time you don 't need to take an antibiotic to get over that infection right this time meantime next time and this the idea is you do all this stuff in the meantime so that next time you don 't have to take these kind of uh, uh, high uh, uh, kind of higher risk, more brutal top-down interventions in order to engineer uh, a fix. And what I've started to wonder is is whether and how this applies to our collective challenges. The more that I read or or listen to smart environmentalists like, you know, Nate Hagans, who we've had on a few times, the, the more convinced I am that we cannot engineer our way through the climate catastrophe, whether we look at it through the lens of ocean warming or topsoil depletion or disease or species extinctions, refugees, um, energy, or even economic inequality. I, I just don't see Monsanto fixing the agriculture or Meta creating a new home for human consciousness in time. It way, way more probable would be a a rapid, voluntary degrowth. And all I mean by degrowth is people having fun and making love and sharing stuff instead of working all the time to make unnecessary things that people have to be brainwashed through media to buy in the first place. But if we're not going to Engineer our way out of this mess. If the crisis really is so bad that even many of our best environmentalists have have given up, you know, and are having dinner instead of working on climate change, if the probability of solving this thing through conventional engineering is really so infinitesimally small, then might. The more logical, probable path to sustainability be the unconventional. In other words, what if our last best hope for flourishing together is magic? I don't mean magic show magic or even Crowleyan occult magic, but the magic of a sudden, unexpected shift in who we are or how we think. Like five of you just clicked off thinking this guy's crazy. Um, Another way to think of it is like instead of being rescued by UFO craft that have been constructed on some other planet and, and, and propelled themselves through the universe to us, it's more like meeting the interdimensional creatures that have been with us here all along or We even finally just meet the plants and animals and organisms that have been here with us all along in the real world. When we went into covid lockdowns and saw the pictures of just how quickly nature recovered in some places due to lack of human activity, it made me feel like we still have a chance, but a very different chance than the one offered by geo-engineered fixes like carbon capture machines or electric vehicles. I'm thinking more along the lines of meeting one's neighbors and finding satisfaction in the mundane or the people behind corporations and markets, seeing the futility and self-torture involved in maintaining those extractive and murderous institutions, or or something else. Some Unexpected remote high leverage point, something that just flips collectively as easily as when we as individuals learn to see dirt as living soil, or trees as an interconnected forest, dreams as messages, or, or the body as a biome or something even more outrageous like like a quantum shift emergent collective awareness or or mycelial education just just pow something tiny flips and the whole system changes there is a wisdom in the weird and a wisdom among the faithful that those of us on the rational side of reality neglect at our own peril our most I'm delighted to bring you today's guest, Emil P. Torres. They just got their PhD after many years of study and publishing. Emil is probably best known for the book Extinction: A History of the Science and Ethics of Annihilation, but They came to my attention recently for coining the acronym TESCREAL, a delightfully simple way of capturing what I myself was trying to address in the entirety of my book Survival of the Richest, this tech bro mindset informed by scientism and transhumanism and effective altruism that seems so rational except for its utter disregard for nature, people, complexity, feelings, and experience. And rather than explaining it all here, Let me go right to our conversation. Emil! Hi! Hey, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I'm an instant fan. (laughs) As you know, I mean, I started working along similar lines in Mm -hmm. 2018 after I met my crazy billionaires. And Mm -hmm. eventually with my editor, he he's like, dude, you've got to like name this thing. And, you know, we decided to call it the mindset, which was kind of my version of the California ideology, I guess, Mm -hmm. which, you know, started with with Richard Barbrook back when. But um, I mean, we'll see if it catches on or not, but Tescriol is a great way of describing the conflux of philosophies and phenomena that really compose what I was calling the mindset. And I guess I was hoping you could kind of explain to those who haven't heard of it what Test Creole is and the sort of the genesis of this uh, acronym.
2: Yeah, sure. So the acronym stands for, and this is a, a mouthful, it's a bunch of polysyllabic terms, transhumanism, extropianism, singularitarianism, Cosmism, rationalism, effective altruism, and long-termism. And so the backbone on the conception that I've been promoting of this notion, transhumanism is the backbone. And if that's the case, long-termism is sort of the galaxy brain that sits atop. And it sort of binds together a lot of the major themes and core elements of these different ideologies. And so basically, the reason that I uh, came up with the term was I was writing a paper with Dr. Timnit Gebru, basically tracing the influence of some of these ideologies within the field of AI. You know, So she's been a fairly well-known, well, I would say quite well-known computer scientist, and the field over the past two, three decades has been focused on you know, particular tasks, like facial recognition would be an example. And really just over the past five or 10 years, the field has been invaded by people who are obsessed with artificial general intelligence, or AGI. And so she was trying to understand why is this? Why are these people talking about like colonizing space and creating this techno-utopian world and becoming digital and so on? So we're we're, uh, tracing the influence of these ideologies within the field of AI. And the paper started to become unmanageable because we were saying things like Nick Bostrom A transhumanist who participated in the extropian movement, who has close ties to the founder of cosmism, who's written about the singularity and hopes that the singularity, on a certain understanding of that term, comes to pass. And is also, you know, a part of the rationalist community, hugely influential among EAs or effective altruists, and was a founder of long-termism. So you can already see how that itself is a small paragraph. <laughs> right. So how can we streamline the conversation so that the paper isn't you know, twice as long with just these
1: sentences with all of these polysyllabic terms? Right. So for those who are uninitiated in the locker room lingo of the tech, extended tech think, thinker community, we should go through each of the terms briefly. So <laughs> transhumanism especially as compared to post-humanism. But transhumanism is what? Yeah, so this is the idea that we should
2: use advanced technology, so synthetic biology, nanotechnology, artificial intelligence, to radically re-engineer ourselves, ultimately to become a post-human species or become, as individuals, post-human beings. So the core value of transhumanism is having the opportunity to explore various post-human modes of being. And the idea is that these post-human modes of being could be much better than our current human mode. So maybe we become immortal. Perhaps we could augment our cognitive system by plugging our brains into computers, you know, uh, hook our brains up to the World Wide Web.
1: Yeah, or just get a, get a Spanish USB stick that I just shove in somewhere and I have Spanish. Exactly. But it would also yeah. be, I could get an, another a robot arm or something like that too, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sort of the logical end of
2: this is not just integrating technology into our biology, you know, merging artifact and organism, but ultimately replacing biology altogether. So you just right. replace the biological substrate because a lot of our problems, I think they would argue, are the result of us being biological. Right, and, DNA you know, biology, and stuff, yeah. DNA and stuff. It's just not good. Let's get rid of these meatbags, bags. that we walk around with and just replace it with computer hardware.
1: Right. And if you could somehow just guarantee a continuity of consciousness through my biological thing into my robot one, then cool. All right. Mm -hmm. I'll fly around in a silicon suit instead. Right. And I still get sex and I still get you know, joy yeah. or whatever. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, it sounds like it's a little bit more appealing to people who are a bit less physical and emotional and touchy-feely than me. But all right, so there's transhumanism. Then the next one is... is uh Extropianism. Extropianism. Yeah. So actually, the next
2: three letters in this acronym are pretty much just variants of transhumanism. So, you know, extropianism was the first organized transhumanist movement. So this emerged in the late 1980s, early 1990s. I mentioned before Nick Bostrom was a part of this community. Eliezer Yudkowsky was as well. He's one of the the leading AI doomers, (laughs) Uh you know, who's claiming that if we create AGI in the near future, it's going to kill literally everybody on Earth. And so, yeah, extropianism had a very libertarian flavor to it. In fact, on its official reading list was Ayn Rand's uh, Atlas Shrugged. <laughs> so, and you know, then there were there were a number of individuals who were in this extropian movement who found the libertarian leaning somewhat objectionable. And so then you get like the World Transhumanist Association, the late 1990s emerging, which is trying to be, you know, a bit broader in terms of its political leanings. <laughs>
1: Right. And they're basically optimistic, pro-tech future. It's like a utopia, a technological utopia, pedal to the metal, let's just keep making this. So like, if you want to invest a lot in Google so they can make a place for Ray Kurzweil to put his brain, that's sort of an extropian vision of a positive tech future. Yeah, exactly. I mean, utopianism, or more specifically, techno-utopianism
2: is central to the transhumanist vision of the future. You know, this post-human world in which we become immortal super beings and have total control over our emotions, and we literally live, as Nick Boster put it in his letter from Utopia, in surpassing bliss and delight. I mean, it's really at the core of the whole Tescruel bundle. Right. So Yeah, so this is extropianism, and you're exactly right that there, it's very pro-technology. In fact, Some of the leading extropians proposed an alternative to the precautionary principle, which they called the proactionary principle. So maybe the development of certain technologies will introduce certain major, you know, maybe unprecedented risks to our survival. But what we need to do is weigh up the risks as well as the costs of delaying the development of these technologies. So, you know, maybe there are people alive today, if we speed up the development of technology, could become immortal before they pass away, you know, from old age or disease or accident or something like that. So those people might lose
1: out on the opportunity to live forever. Right. Or if climate change, if climate change is coming, that, you know, creating new super acid proof skin, you know, and mutation (laughs) abilities might be necessary, you know, so that people could live in 140 degree weather or, you know, on rust, dead planet or people that could eat rocks or whatever. So All right. So then next (laughs) to singularity, which most people know, is like this moment, whatever, where they think that either technology will surpass human intelligence or that we pass the evolutionary torch, that there's some Mm -hmm. singularity moment. And there are these places we singularity university and all that. Again, very optimistic, pedal to the metal, X prize, $100 billion are going to be spent on flying cars or whatever, yeah. to get to that moment. Yeah,
2: exactly right. I mean, there are different notions of the singularity, right? I mean, one is the kind of Kurzweilian notion. So this yeah. comes from, most famously has been advocated by Ray Kurzweil. And it's just the idea that as technology and biology merge together, the rate of technological progress will it is increasing exponentially. And at some point, we'll cross this threshold where it becomes so fast and so rapid that we just cannot even begin to imagine what the world beyond that looks like. So it's, there's sort of this event horizon, which right. is also I was linked say, to this. Yeah, yeah,
1: chaos math. We pass over the lip of the strange attractor, you know, yeah. into the new reality. Yeah, and
2: so another notion of the singularity, which maybe it may actually derive the singularity as just described, is this notion of an intelligence explosion, right? So it could be the case that. You know, since designing AI systems is an intellectual task, if we get AI systems that are as capable as us, cognitively speaking, then they could take over the uh, task of designing more AI systems. And so with each iteration, you get a a quote-unquote smarter AI system that is therefore better positioned to design even smarter AI systems. And so, you know, maybe this unfolds in a matter of like months or weeks, or maybe seconds, some would argue. And all of a sudden you have this super intelligence AI system that is difference between us and it might be the same as the difference between us and the lowly cockroach. Right. So all of a sudden, just boom, this explosion. And so that's another notion
1: of the singularity. Right. So this thing, so now we're, we're halfway through. Now it's Creole. So C, I was surprised about. It. I mean, I thought I was one of the only ones who's been harping on cosmism yep. for the past 10 years. And it's partly because I knew a guy named Bob Schwartz. Who mm-hmm. was a technology investor and one of the um on the board of something called the Institute for noetic sciences it's a a Sausalito gate five road, a whole earth and well adjacent organization that you know kind of follows the ideas of Buckminster Fuller and some of these folks It's all into. All these kinds of things, but it's basically Mm -hmm. middle-aged wealthy people paying for research into like Rupert Sheldrake stuff and Terrence McKenna stuff looking for some clue that they get to live on after they die or can cure their cancer or whatever. So Mm -hmm. the Institute of Noetic Sciences people, most of them were at these meetings at Esalen in the 1970s. There were these two-track diplomacy meetings where they got American scientists and new age people to meet with Russian scientists and new age people at Esalen, like during the Gorbachev era, as a way of trying to, you know, really promote trans-specific, you know, love and harmony. And that's when people like John Lilly and Steve Jobs or whoever met weird Russian people who like believed that you could put human brains into robots, that you could share consciousness with dolphins. It's like Margot Kidder (laughs) was out there swimming naked with dolphins and having sexual experiences. It was just this wild thing. But to me, it was like, oh, that's when all of these strange kind of transhumanist memes uh, dovetailed with West Coast psychedelic technological memes. And we got a lot of the beliefs that we have. So how did you know or find or discover to include cosmism in this nest of ideas? Yeah. (laughs) So I'm definitely aware of the Russian cosmos, right, which go
2: back to the, the latter 19th century. But the main impetus for including this letter in the acronym is the fact that the main advocate of modern cosmism is Ben Gertzel. And Ben Gertzel is a computer scientist who participated in the extropian movement. So he's a transhumanist. And he was connected to a lot of these major figures within the test community for many years, you know, going back to the early 1990s. He also is the one who christened the term artificial general intelligence huh. in a book that I think was published in 2007 or so. So he's played a major role in getting AGI, on the the radar on the map so that's really the the main reason is that there's a and you know cosmism is just kind of transhumanism uh expanded to this sort of cosmic level and in his cosmos manifesto which was published in 2010 uh goetzel talks about you know how we're going to be able to spread into space re-engineer galaxies engage in something that he calls space-time engineering so just, you know, manipulating the universe at the most fundamental levels, and ultimately to develop what he calls a scientific magic. You know, so this mm. is probably an allusion to uh, Arthur C. Clarke's third law of technology, which says that any sufficiently advanced technology will appear as magic to us. You know, so imagine right. showing a, a smartphone to like an australopithecine back uh,
1: three million years ago. They're just going to be, th- their right. mind will be blown. I have no idea how this works. So... So Cosmos <laughs> also is kind of a stand in for the semi occult thread in the tech crowd, you know, the crowd that understands that mimetic engineering is a form of alchemy or the kind mm-hmm. of the Peter Thiel sort of investing in orbit as a, you know, it's kind of a, a crypto culture, but it has a somewhat occult, magical quality to it as well. So if mm-hmm. the singularity is kind of the Christian, you know, transubstantiation moment, right? The, the the singularity moment, like when Christ rises, we all rise, whatever, the rush, the, the cosmism is the more new agey Gnostic sort of spiritual side of all of these technologies. Just a little bit of kek and kek the frog. And you know what I mean? That It sort of brings in some of that, that element to it. You know what I mean? They certainly, if Teal and Musk are kind of included in some of that cosmist strain, you can see that, oh, this is why they're supporting so many kind of magicians and occultists and you know, Satanists and people in their work. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a fascinating fascinating way to put it. I've, I've not thought about it
2: in those terms before. Mm. But I mean, just to add to your comment that the singularity, th- there are interesting points of contact with the Christian tradition, in particular, Christian eschatology, you know, which is the, just means the study of last things. Right. <laughs> and, you know, eschatology is really central to the Christian religion. And so, you know, Ray Kurzweil, for example, he predicts that in 2045, the singularity will happen at that point. Yeah, everything's going to change. And some critics of this view, in fact, I believe some individuals who embrace this view as well refer to this as the techno rapture. Right. You know, where the rapture is, is central to a particular interpretation of Christian eschatology.
1: Right. And they go there. And Christianity is very linear that way. It's a story with a mm-hmm. beginning, middle, and an end. you got to get to your omega point, you know? Yeah. So you've got your, you know, you, all your, and I argue with them a lot, your kind of Deschardins people that are like, oh, you know, we don't want to, you don't want to slow things down or humanity won't reach the omega point that we're trying to reach toward where everything's going to work out. It's like, oh, so It's an ends justifies the means kind of thing. Then Is that what you're saying, right? We suffer now, (laughs) but we get the prize later. You can't have your pudding till you eat your meat. All right, (laughs) let's go there. So then the next in there, which is interesting, is what is the R? Is rationalism? Mm Mm-hmm. And rationalism, is that the kind of thing that in my book I was complaining about? I know people have been saying I'm being too mean to Richard Dawkins, but he was really, really mean to me saying that I was being spiritual and there's only, you know, that everything needs to be understood very materialist. You know, is that sort of the rationalism? The folks that are like, there's nothing special going on here? It's all just atoms? I think that's part of it. I mean, a lot of the individuals who are in the rationalist
2: movement, I would say realist in general, are atheistic you know and this notion of spiritualism you know i think that's pretty foreign to them and there's definitely a strong emphasis on a particular interpretation of rationality which is supposed to be non-emotional and ultimately mm. your emotions get in the way of proper good clear thinking and so you know rationalism emerged I think really in the 2010s Hmm. after eliezer yudkowsky founded a community blogging website called less wrong in 2009 and so again yudkowsky is a transhumanist who participated in the extropian movement so you again you could see these connections they're all over the place (laughs) um and i think the idea was like okay if we're going to create this techno utopian post-human future and ultimately spread into the cosmos and maximize value by subjugating nature, plundering the resources in the universe, which they call our cosmic endowment of negentropy or negative entropy, usable energy, basically. We're going to need a lot of very smart people doing very smart things. So maybe it's worth it to take a step back and think a bit more about what it means to be smart. How can we optimize our smartness? In other words, how can we become more rational?
0: Mm.
2: You know, rationality is this instrument that we're going to use to create this techno-utopian world. So that's really the thrust behind rationalism. How can we neutralize these cognitive biases that distort our thinking so that we can figure out how to bring about this marvelous post-human future that we want
1: so bad? Well, if the future is something dependent solely on engineering then it makes sense to get everything else out of the way. Exactly, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the key features, I think, of the test
2: bundle, aside from the fact that the communities have overlapped significantly, the ideologies are very similar, is that the bundle as a whole shares a number of common features. And one is that everything from their perspective is an engineering problem. (laughs) So, right. and you know, how do you, like you're saying, how is it that you effectively solve an engineering problem? Well, you just, you just
1: figured out how to be smarter, <laughs> you know, right. how to solve problems better. So that, yeah, that's the idea with rationalism. Right. So even humanity is an engineering problem.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. So this right. is another point that I've made in some of my articles that, you know, there's this notion that our technologies are becoming so powerful that they're introducing these unprecedented risks. And What we need in order to properly mitigate these risks is to boost or augment our wisdom so that it's commensurate with these risks. How do we boost our wisdom? Well, one way is to use these technologies to re-engineer ourselves. So humanity itself, like you said, is an engineering problem. And you find this in uh, even recent discussions about artificial general intelligence. So I mentioned before that Yudkowsky is one of the leading AI doomers, and he believes that if we create AGI within the foreseeable future, it's going to destroy all humans. And so in a number of interviews, he said that if we were a truly sane society, what we would do right now is hit pause. On All AGI research. So no more progress in that field. And we take those resources, spend them instead trying to figure out how to radically enhance our cognition. So if only we're smarter, then we'd be able to figure out how to design an AGI so that it doesn't just destroy us. And how do we become smarter? Well, I mean, you can read books, you know, and so on. But maybe there are just limitations to the wetware that's in between our ears. And so maybe what we need to do is just redesign that wetware, maybe plug it into, you know, computers, (laughs) or maybe we need to upload our minds, and then we can, you know, more easily intervene on the algorithm to make it, you know, more intelligent.
1: Right. Right. So in some ways, I mean, it, it's uh, an advanced or highly uh, literal version of when I say human beings have to intervene in the development of technology, they're thinking, right, well, why don't we take a person and maybe plug them into the machine before we add more to the machine? So it's more of the, the old vision of human augmentation and participation. So these things don't kind of run away without us. Yeah, Absolutely. All right. So then we get effective altruism, which a lot of us learned about after uh, the Sand Bankman Freed fiasco. So effective altruism was basically, I thought the idea, again, it's very rational. It's a rational uh, kind of Jeremy Bentham utilitarianism on digital steroids of there's some day going to be hundreds of trillions of artificial intelligences out in the cosmos or the whole solar system or the Milky Way, then what are the 8 billion larval human beings really matter? It's okay if these ones suffer, the people, the things, the, the fleshbots that are uh, alive on planet Earth today, if it's for the benefit of these other ones in the future, right? Is it kind of that? So I think that is the uh, heart of long-termism. And so
2: long-termism emerged out of effective altruism. So historically, effective altruism was significantly shaped by rationalism. And you know, actually there's some people in the community who have suggested to me that EA is basically what you get when rationalists pivot from focusing just on rationality to focusing on morality. So, you know, whereas rationalists are striving to optimize their rationality. EAs or effective altruists are striving to optimize their morality, so they want to do the most good they can possibly do in the world. And that sounds nice at first. When you start to look at the details, it's not so pretty. And also, it's you know this movement has inspired people like Sam Bankman-Fried. <laughs> you know, right. and I, I think that EA ideology is part of the explanation of why Bankman-Fried did what he did you know, was for the greater good.
1: How does an effective altruist, what are examples of the way an effective altruist does good? It's not by teaching his neighbors how to read, I guess.
2: Yeah. So (laughs) there's a lot to say. You know, one of the main ideas of EA that was promoted very heavily early on and is not so much foregrounded these days, especially after SBF, Right. Is this notion of earn to give? So if you all of this is very consistent with this uh, what we were saying before about rationalism, you know, wanting like nothing to do with emotions, and you know, emotions are are just uh, problem children. <laughs> you know, you need to to tame them. Yeah, it's for eas and for rationalists. Ethics is really about number crunching, you know. So I'll give you a striking example that's somewhat infamous at this point. Back in maybe twenty ten or so. Around then, Eliezer Yudkowsky published a blog post on Less Wrong, in which he asked the following question, if you were in a forced choice situation, so you had to choose between these two options, on the one hand, somebody, an individual being horrifically tortured for 50 years straight. On the other hand, some enormous number, unfathomable number of individuals suffering the almost imperceptible discomfort of having an eyelash in their eye. Which would you choose? Well, if you crunch the numbers, if you do what Yudkowsky calls shut up and multiply, you'll find that the greater evil is the eyelash in the eyes. Because even though it's very small... (laughs) The suffering is just a very tiny amount for each individual. There are so many individuals. If you just multiply it across, you know, how many people are affected, then that is a greater harm than somebody being tortured for 50 years.
1: Right. So you just kill Jesus because everyone else will be saved. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's a little of that. I mean, get a little infinite suffering, but right. I mean, in my book, it was... uh, 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 and I didn't know how to name it at the time, but it was a scene that I saw, so I intuitively understood it as part of this thing, Were these two tech bros I was on a Zoom with who were asking, what if you could push a button, like, one person in China will die, but the January 6th riots Will end completely peacefully. Is it yep. worth it? And they're like, of course it is. Someone yeah. we don't even know. <laughs> of course. You could just push a <laughs> button. And it's that. You know, One person you don't know, someone else dies, and then all this other stuff, you know, no one has to worry about what college they go to. Okay. I mean, mathematically, it kind of makes sense, I guess. Yeah.
2: And so it's exactly this mathematical approach to morality. I mean, it's basically, it's morality as a branch of economics.
1: <laughs> you know? Right. And it was that, like the whole of Whole Foods guy who wrote that book, Conscious Capitalism. And yep. they on the surface or the Bill Gates, I'm going to buy up all the farmland in America. And that's going to be a good thing because he doesn't think about biodiversity or complex systems or anything. It's just, I'm going to make better decisions on what to do with it. So Mm -hmm. the effective altruists get to the place where they're like, look, it's better for me to be a rapacious venture capitalist and externalize all this harm on my employees and my communities if I make enough money to make up for it by paying a billion dollars on malaria fighting mosquito nets in Africa.
2: Yeah, exactly. So there, there was a journalist who described what Sam Bankman Fried did as, well, the aim being to quote, get filthy rich for charity's sake. And so that's the idea of earn to give. So, you know, maybe if you right. crunch the numbers given this sort of mathematical approach to morality, you'll find that rather than going to work for a nonprofit, You can do more good in the world. You can save more lives if you go and work on Wall Street or even for a petrochemical company. And then you take, you know, maybe 10% or maybe 50% of your income and you donate that to a charity, like you said, you know, buying anti-malarial bed nets uh, for people who live in malaria-affected regions.
1: If you really believe, I mean, it works if you genuinely really believe that you are taking into account All of the externalities of your awful business behavior. You know, the Filipino mining companies smelting and polluting. It's like, yes, but... Then, where do the chemicals go? Do they go into the ocean? Are you counting the orange ruffie in Miami that are getting poisoned, and the children who then can't go to school, and the yeah. you know, because they're usually not calculating all the harm. They draw really tight boundaries around the harm, and then infinite boundaries around the supposed good that they're going to do with the dollar that they've taken from the poor person.
2: Yeah, and I would say even more, there is a an issue of moral integrity, you know. So they would argue. To counter your objection here, that there's this counterfactual point, which is that if you don't take the job on Wall Street, somebody else is going to. There are only so many jobs on Wall Street. Somebody's going to take it if you don't. And if they take it instead of you, they're probably not going to donate that money. So you actually, so there's a net gain by you taking that uh, job. Well, I could go be a mafia boss at that point. Yeah. So where do you draw the line? Nathan Robinson, for example, has noted that this seems like a pretty good argument for becoming a an officer at, like, a prison or a concentration camp or, or something. You know, I mean, maybe you donate that money, and so there's just net good. But there, ultimately, I think the good response to this counterargument, based on the, the counterfactual reasoning, has to do with moral integrity. You know, working for literally what William McCaskill, one of the leading EAs, co-founder of the movement— refers to as evil organizations, which he says is okay if you're going to give that money to charity. Um, working for evil in evil organization, I don't know, that doesn't sit well with most people because it seems to compromise their moral integrity. And that, some would argue, if you don't see morality just as a branch of economics, for many people that matters. You know, so like, I'm just not going to go work on Wall Street. I'm not going to work for a petrochemical company. Even if I crunch the numbers and like, okay, actually, maybe I'd have more money to donate.
1: It just feels too wrong in a deep way. All right. (laughs) So effective altruism. And then finally... Long-termism, which, right, is the outgrowth of effective altruism. So once you're doing everything rationally that way and by the numbers, you can argue, if you're an extropian and believe that there's going to be trillions of human-AI hybrid beings, that it makes, again, just like it makes mathematical sense for eight billion people not to have an eyelash and just let one little Chinese person suffer for five years if you don't meet them and know them. Because if you know about it, then we all might experience a little pain at it, Mm -hmm. which has (laughs) got to be out of of mind, that the long-termists say that it's okay for people to suffer today if we're going to do good tomorrow. I mean, in practice, I think that is an implication.
2: So basically, long-termism emerged when effective altruists who were greatly influenced by rationalism and many of the ideologies coming before, they realized that, actually, if you read what some cosmologists have written about the potential bigness of the future, the universe itself is enormous. Earth will remain habitable for another billion years. So that's a really long time. You know, civilizations exist for 6,000 years, Homo sapiens for maybe 300,000 years. And you know, consequently, the number of people just on Earth alone in the future could be huge. So, you know, historically, there have been, one estimate is 117 billion people so far in anthropological history. And then in 1983, I believe it was, this was the first time anybody ever calculated how many future people there could be. Um, and it was Carl Sagan. And he said, okay, if we exist for just 10 million years more and the human population remains stable, there could be 500 trillion people in the future. So that's something like 4,000, more than 4,000 times how many people have existed so far. But if we spread into space, you know, the human population could be enormous. That's across the, along the spatial dimension, along the temporal dimension, we could exist for a really long time into the future, at least 10 to the 40 years. So one followed by 40 zeros. And so consequently, this future human population could be absolutely freaking huge. So the way this all fits together is if your aim as an effective altruist is to positively influence the greatest number of people possible. And if it turns out that most people who could exist will exist in the far future, then maybe what you should be doing is trying to figure out ways to positively influence them. If you positively influence 1% of the estimated 10 to the 58 digital people who could exist in the future, that is a much bigger number than the 1.3 billion people in multidimensional poverty today. So if you have to choose between them, you're going to choose the far future. So it's not that current day people matter less. It's just a numbers game. Everybody counts for one. Since there are so many more people who could exist in the future than exist in the present, you should be focused on them. And I mean, furthermore, another key aspect of this view is it's not part of the idea is that there are two ways to positively influence somebody. One is to increase their quality of life. Another way is to bring them into existence in the first place. If they're going to have a net positive life, then creating them is a kind of benefit to that individual. So philosophers will call this existential benefit. And on the long-termist view, which is, I'd say, just like the transhumanist view and so on, it's just very capitalistic, very economic in its way of thinking. The ultimate goal is just to maximize value. So the more value that exists in the future, or the more value that exists in the universe as a whole, the better the universe is. So not only um, is it a benefit to bring these people into existence in the future, but the more people you create, assuming they have on average net positive lives, the more total value exists in the universe as a whole. So that's why we have this moral imperative to create the largest future civilization possible. William McCaskill talks about this in his uh, book from last summer, What We Owe the Future, which is, you know, a treatise on long-termisms, you know, I think it was intended to be the authoritative text, the, the Bible of long-termism. And he has a whole section where he says, you know, bigger is better. That's what we hear from economists and, you know, but yeah. so that's really the idea behind long-termism.
1: Right. Be fruitful yeah. and multiply yeah. through the lens of exponential extropianism yeah.
0: gets exactly. you that.
1: Right. So for me, without having to find all the terms and threads, the experience I had with, you know, five tech billionaires who were thinking about the future and their bunkers and how to control their security guards in this necessary future – As being the confluence of some kind of historical forces, whether it was the empirical science of Francis Bacon, the techno-solutionism of Silicon Valley, the abstracted morality of the conscious capitalists, all kind of came together into what looked to me like madness, This madness, you know, they will kill us all. They will kill us all for our own good, even. And my God. And people laughed and got it and sort of, you know, it it was good. But Tescriole it would be a great way to organize the chapters of that book into each of those uh, threads or another way, certainly to organize the chapters of the book. Cause I hit on each one of these things either by sometimes with different names, sometimes with different lineages, but we're singing the same song from, you know, it's just, you're, you, you know, you're the Joni Mitchelling while I'm Crosby, Stills, Nash and Younging, you know, <laughs> but we're part of the same movement here, you know, which is fun and, and wonderful and uh, grounding. The, Critique that you got on Tescrio, though, it's so funny the way Twitter people understand things, is that it seemed as if people thought you were saying there is a conspiracy, of T's, E's, Skrill, and Skrills, you know, that each of these groups and people are working together. Like, Tess is like a Bohemia grove of consciously organized long-termists undermining uh, humanity. Was that, were you surprised to, to see it critiqued like that?
2: I did not anticipate it being described as a conspiracy theory. Yeah. That seemed really strange to me. And you know, even stranger, or rather humorous, was that one of the individuals who retweeted that article about this being a conspiracy theory was an individual named uh, Anders Sandberg, who's at the Future of Humanity Institute, based at in Oxford. So, Anders Sandberg was an Extropian, is a transhumanist, has written about the singularity, and anticipates the singularity occurring. I think with some excitement so long as it goes well. He has lots of historical ties with Ben Gertzel, same conferences, working basically in the same field. He publishes, he comments on the Less Wrong blog, which is the epicenter of rationalism. He's hugely influential among EAs. And in fact, the Future of Humanity Institute shared office space with the number one most influential institute for effective altruism called the Center for Effective Altruism, CEA. So FHI, mm. Future Man Institute, and CEA, Shared Office Space. So <laughs> Anders is right there. And he's also a long-termist. So here's a guy who has direct connections to literally every letter in the test girl acronym, who's retweeting this <laughs> article about how it's a conspiracy theory. So I just found it to be just really bizarre. And I mean, the idea is, is really just that, okay, there's this cluster of ideologies Many of the ideologies have grown out of previous ones. You know, I think of that as a like suburban sprawl, basically mm-hmm. resulting in this in this conurbation of different districts, basically that share a whole lot of the same ideological real estate. And the claim is just that you know this has been influential among you know leading tech people. Ray Kurzweil is at Google. You know, he has a high-level position there. He is a singularitarian and transhumanist. And his view is very cosmist and long-termist in its flavor. Elon Musk is a transhumanist, right? And he created this company called Neuralink, which aims to ultimately merge us with AI. That's a very transhumanist notion. And he's explicitly said that long-termism is, quote, a close match for my philosophy. I'll give you just one more example. Sam Altman, who's the CEO of OpenAI, According to a recent New York Times profile, he's a product of the rationalist and EA communities. He's also a transhumanist who literally expects our brains to be digitized within our lifetimes. So, you know, 2018, he was one of 25 people who signed up with this company called Nectome to have his brain preserved so it could be digitized. Just a quick side note, the, the only way that Nectome, the way that Nectome is promising that they'll preserve brains is by euthanizing the patient. I have no idea if right. Sam Alden is planning on going forward with that. It's the only way it'll work, right? You can't wait 10 minutes after they're dead, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then also his view is very long-termist. Right. He literally talks about colonizing space and, you know, without AGI, that's going to be impossible. He's mentioned this on Twitter. So this is another person who, I mean, really, I think the, the test real ideologies are just kind of the water that a lot of these people yes. swim in. It's just kind of everywhere. And even people who wouldn't explicitly say, I'm a long-termist, you know, are nonetheless influenced by these ideologies because they're they're just kind of everywhere
1: in the, the tech world. Right. No, not every angel investor's read Ayn Rand, even if they believe everything Jason Calacanis exactly. says on yes. This Week in Startups, you know? Yes. It's funny. When I started Team Human, a lot of people thought, oh, you mean Team Human against Team Robot. And I'm like, well, I guess. I mean, the original Team Human idea came up because I was on a panel with Kurzweil and he said I was only defending humanity because I was a human. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, all right, guilty. I'm on Team Human. That's how it <laughs> became a thing. But to me, you're clearly on, even though you're not in most of your pieces about Teskrio, you're not saying, and this is dangerous and these are bad guys. You're being pretty cool and just saying there's this confluence of ideas that are self-reinforcing and mutually amplifying. And at least bringing them into consciousness might be a good thing. So we have a way of understanding where stuff's coming from. That said, on an intuitive level, Tescrio feels like a potentially dangerous system of thought, if not kept in check or countered or somewhat balanced by something more... I don't know, human, emotional, intuitive, feminine? Uh, I don't know, what what are we allowed to say? Yeah. Black? <laughs> Indigenous? Uh, Haraway? <laughs> Where do I go, you know? There's a problem here, right? It's definitely
2: very white, very Western, very male. One thing that's striking, if you read the Tesquero literature, in, in um, descriptions of what the future should look like, there is virtually zero reference to perspectives on this issue from non-western points of views or from you know the perspectives of well indigenous people muslims you know islam is is growing the number of adherents is projected to increase at least until the middle of the century in a sense the future is more religious rather than less we ought to Take that seriously. But also, you know, Afrofuturism, feminism, disability, queerness, there are all of these other perspectives that are completely ignored within the Tescaro literature. Or shunned,
1: or actively shunned.
2: Exactly, actively shunned. And ultimately then, their vision of utopia ends up being deeply impoverished. It is very capitalistic, it's very Baconian, it's very white dude, Western and so i have argued in some of my articles that the not just the pursuit of utopia but the realization of utopia i think would be catastrophic for most of humanity because yeah. in this utopian world where do indigenous communities fit you know where do marginalized people yeah. does disability exist in this utopia i mean if you look at the what they've written it's like no uh, they, it just, it's just completely erased.
1: right? Well, certain disabilities, you know, uh, uh, spectrum disabilities and, you know, the disabilities that Musk and certain people have, you know, exist. But the ones that they don't have don't. It's funny. I, you know, I'm thinking about my friend and occasional mentor, Timothy Leary, mm-hmm. and his personal evolution through this space. Mm-hmm. Right. So in the early 70s, he was writing something called SMILE, you know, S M I L E, which was space migration, intelligence increase and life extension, mm-hmm. which sounds very test right? And it was all oh, we're going to get to space and be super smart and take lots of acid and extend our lives forever and trick the DNA and all. But over time, you know, he read a book about Nicholas Negroponte's Media Lab by Stuart Brand. I was with him when he read it in the late 80s or early. And he was like, there's a problem here. You know, first he's like, there's no women. There's no women here. These guys, they're trying to recreate the womb. They, they want a robot to come and bring them everything. They don't want to live. This is horrible. Right. So that was the first. Time. And then when he was dying, I mean, he wore the cryogenic little bracelet for most of his end of his life, you know, for them to come with Alcor. And like when you die, you have these instructions so that your brain can be saved. And then the Alcor people come take your brain out or your head and freeze it in some place in like San Francisco. And the Alcor people came and were talking to him, you know, in preparation for his death. And as soon as they left the house, he was like, cancel that thing, cancel it, cancel it. And we're all like, Tim, why, why? We thought you wanted to save your brain and see the future and all that. He says, and he says, this is perfect. And he should have met you. He said, I don't want to wake up in a world with those guys in lab coats and clipboards. I don't want to wake up in their world. Like, if they're right, I don't want to be there. And that's really what he was saying was, I don't want to live in the hyper-rationalist world of the very life extension people, the very long-termist people who claim they can save my brain on ice. Yeah. I mean, it's easy
2: to come up with dystopian futures that lots of people can agree about. It's really difficult to come up with a utopian vision that more than a few (laughs) people would want to live in. (laughs) <laughs> right. And their utopia is not something that I would want to be a part of. Right. So I completely agree. I would not want to wake up in this digital future with the singularity. And I mean, it's very like monochromatic. It's very, you know, I don't know how else to describe it. It's, it's, it's just impoverished. And beyond that, also, I would completely agree that this view could be dangerous as well. So I've definitely argued this. I mean, this, this was my initial argument that I made back in 2021. Really, it goes back to to 2019, but the first published version of this argument was 2021 Uh in in Eon. And the claim was basically that after I had spent a fair amount of time studying the history of utopian movements that became violent, it became apparent that there are two components at the core of these utopian ideologies in the past that led them to believe that extreme tactics are justified, morally speaking. One is this utopian vision. You know, In the future, we'll live forever. There's going to be astronomical or infinite amounts of value. So the amount of value in the future is just enormous. On the other hand, there's this kind of broadly utilitarian mode of moral reasoning. So you had mentioned before, ends justify the means. Maybe not always. But when the end is a literal utopia of astronomical amounts of value, then it starts to look like maybe a little bit of murder or genocide yeah. or something is justified to bring about... I mean, the stakes are enormous. What is off yeah, the table?
1: Exactly. I mean, well, we have a interstate highway system. We knew when we are building it that people are going to get run over. I mean... Or, or or go through the windshield of their... It's part of it, but it's the price of progress, right? Hasn't yeah. it always been that way? Under the People are going to die under the wagon wheels as we head west. Well, I think when the
2: value of the future is so huge, then all sorts of really extreme actions, they start to appear like maybe they're reasonable. <laughs> you know? Right. like So here's an example. Back in 2021, when I published this article... My claim that long-termism, that was my focus then. Now I'd say test realism in general. My claim that it could be dangerous was pretty hypothetical. There are no individuals, or at least there were no individuals at the time in that community who were saying that extreme actions, maybe even violence, could be justified in order to ensure, to protect and preserve this techno-utopian future among the heavens. But I thought like the ingredients are there in the ideology. All that's missing is the right person, the right kind of true believer in the right kind of apocalyptic moment, for them to say, "Okay, this is, <laughs> you know, th- these extreme actions are in fact okay to pursue." But if you fast forward to 2023, you find Eliezer Yudkowsky, for example, arguing that we should risk thermonuclear war by engaging in military strikes against data centers, maybe in other countries, in order to prevent the AGI apocalypse. And the idea is that. A thermonuclear conflict is probably not going to be an existential catastrophe. And by existential catastrophe, I just mean, or the test would say, it's just any event that would permanently foreclose the realization of this techno-utopian future, of astronomical amounts of value. So thermonuclear war is probably not going to you know, cause our extinction. And in fact, the best science backs that up. 2020 studies said that if the U.S. and Russia go to war using nuclear weapons, five billion people will die which leaves a reassuring 3 billion to carry on civilization and ultimately create this future. Oh. So, okay, so thermonuclear war is not going to be an existential catastrophe, but AGI will be. So that's why Yadkowski said, we should risk thermonuclear war to prevent the AGI apocalypse. And when he was asked on Twitter the question, quote, how many people are allowed to die to prevent AGI, meaning in the foreseeable future, he said, as long as the human population remains above what biologists would call the minimum viable population, so mm. there's enough genetic diversity for the species to continue, as long as that's the case, then, quote, there's still a chance that we can mm. reach the star someday.
1: Right. So it's almost like a chemotherapy model of humanity where, you know, there's a can- as long as it doesn't kill the patient... Exactly. It's worth a try. Yeah. So I think this is exactly what I was
2: worried about. You know, if there are people in power who take Yudkowsky seriously, then, you know, maybe billions of people might be sacrificed to ensure the realization of this, you know, space expansionist future.
1: Yeah, but... To these guys, though, who are smarter than us, the risk is the opposite. The risk is that we don't get someone in power who's open to that in time, and humanity, because we're so emotional and lovey-dovey and afraid to sacrifice some of our own babies right now, that we're all going to die. Yeah, I mean, without a doubt, they're worried that um,
2: people in political power are not going to take them seriously. Right. But what's uh, worrying... To me, is that this particular vision of the future, this way of thinking, this general worldview, is becoming, you know, pretty popular among powerful people. I mentioned, like, you know, the tech elite are, you know, many of them are sympathetic with these ideologies, some of them explicitly so. But also, you know, there are articles like the UN Dispatch published an article not that long ago saying that foreign policy circles in general and the United Nations in particular, are beginning to embrace long-termism. And again, long-termism is the galaxy brain atop the testicle bundle that binds together you know, a lot of the the main themes of these other ideologies.
1: Right. And you see it a little bit in like the Great Reset from the World Economic Forum mm-hmm. and some of these places where let's just get the world on a blockchain and account for every coffee bean and, you know, calculate how much enslavement there is and It's all going to be, you know, it's time. Grow up. Let's just do it mathematically.
2: Yeah. So I find this very disconcerting. The 2024 Summit for the Future, hosted by the UN, apparently will be incorporating certain key aspects of long-termism. And, you know, I also have colleagues who are at the United Nations, and they affirm that, yeah, there are lots of people at the UN (laughs) who think, like, this is a, a great way to think about the future, and this is a good ideology to guide public policy in the present. So as far as I could tell, they are at least on track to win, in a certain sense, Mm. at least.
1: And then what's the team human response to this? Either on the micro-lived level, which is where I've been asking most people to respond, because most of us are not influential in those ways. It's like, are there ways to live that are counter to the the Grail mindset? Are there like more organized actions that need to be taken? I mean, what's your antidote? <laughs> I mean, to be candid,
2: I don't really know what to do to counter mm. the, as far as I can tell, at least, the growing influence of this ideology or this, this bundle of ideologies, the mindset, as you would say. I'm really not sure. I mean, for me personally, and this is particular, it's idiosyncratic to my situation. The goal is to just alert the public of these ideologies. In fact, I've spoken to a number of people who are very critical of long-termism and EA and transhumanism and so on. And we've sort of joked that one of the best ways to convince the public that they should reject these ideologies and they should be suspicious of anybody who expresses sympathies or aligns themselves with these ideologies. It's not even to publish articles that offer some sort of critique, which I have done. But Mm. even more, it's just to accurately present to the public what these ideologies say. (laughs) Right. You know, because long-termism is a completely bizarre, uh, extreme, radical off-putting to most people view of the future. And even long-termists themselves acknowledge this. So there was a a Vox article published, um, I think it was last year, about long-termism. And the author of the article mentioned that long-termists themselves... So I hadn't heard this before. I've been out of the community for a few years. That they refer to strong long-termism, radical long-termism, which is the view that's been defended by many of the leading figures... As leading to crazy town, quote unquote. So, you know, this, the article describes the different um, gradations of long termism. And, you know, so you can imagine like you hop on a train and the point of departure is just like the normal way of thinking about the future. And the further you go, the closer you get to crazy town. And Mm. so long termists will talk about like where exactly on this journey do you hop off? And again, a lot of the leading figures, they get off. At Crazy Town. Like, that's the view that they defend. Elon Musk himself tweeted out, I believe it was summer of last year, or maybe late spring of last year. He tweeted out one of the founding documents of long termism, which was published in 2003, written by Nick Bostrom. And the central thrust of the article is exactly what I was saying before the future could be huge. So, in this article, Bostrom calculates. How many digital beings there could be if we colonize space, you know, and exists for maybe trillions of years into the future. So within the Virgo supercluster alone, so that's a cluster of cluster, a cluster of clusters of galaxies that includes our Milky Way. Within the Virgo supercluster alone, there could be ten to the thirty-eight digital people, and so that's just a, you know an enormous number. It boggles the mind. And consequently, failing to create all of those digital people means that the universe will lose an enormous amount of value. And the result of that will be a kind of moral catastrophe. Because because on this kind of utilitarian ethical view that is very influential within long-termism... What you want to do is maximize value. The more value, the better. Right. So anyways, Musk himself has tweeted out, I mean, that is radical long-termism. That's crazy town. And he tweeted that out. And literally the tweet said, he actually retweeted it. And the original tweet said, uh, and I believe I'm quoting, likely the most important paper
1: ever published. Right. <laughs> and they're not even saying it like... You could almost justify it as, look, if we don't develop these technologies in time, we won't get off the planet before the planet blows up. They're not even saying that. They're just saying we are not going to maximize the utilization of our cosmic inheritance of energy, mm-hmm. of anti-entropy. And mm-hmm. that in itself is the crime. The crime is against the ledger, not against life. Yeah, exactly. So in that paper that I just referenced, published in
2: 2003 by Nick Bostrom, uh, one of the things he does is calculate how many digital lives are lost for every second of delayed space colonization. And I believe the number, maybe I'm I'm off uh, by one or two digits, but I think it was 10 to the 23 digital people are lost every second. And so the thrust of the paper or at least another aspect of the paper was that we need to colonize space as soon as possible. But one way to lose these people in the future is to delay colonization. Another way is for an existential catastrophe to happen. So the paper argued that priority number one, two, three, and four, and that's literally how Boster put it, is to mitigate existential risk, to ensure that we survive for long enough to colonize space. And then the fifth priority is to do just that, colonize space, and therefore, maximize value.
1: <laughs> right. There's not that much "be here now" in all this for a bunch of California people taking good psychedelics. You'd think there'd be a little more Ram Dass in there.
2: <laughs> well, in fairness, Bostrom is Swedish,
1: <laughs> so right. Yeah. So yeah, maybe
2: that vibe is just not part of his thing.
1: <laughs> Oh, it's a shame for a place that's nice or they give you good health care and take care of your baby when it's born and all that. It's odd that they would raise that. But I get it. It makes sense to them. It makes sense. But I'm pleased. I'm fine that you don't have a prescription for what we do about it. You've done the, the first part is the most important. Bring this into consciousness. What I decided my prescription was to write a book that made it sound really funny Mm -hmm. You know, in other words, both to because I'm angry to humiliate these people, but more important to make it all look so funny that no one would actually want to do this seriously. You go, oh, my God, that is silly. That really is silly. If we can have that perspective on it rather than scary Nazi end of world. Oh, no. Because if we have a scared response, it's almost it increases the brittleness of the whole society around these issues and leads to more panicked, knee-jerk responses. Whereas if it's funny, we can pull back and take our time and go, oh, I'm going to hug my kids and take care of the environment. And maybe there's a a simpler way to ensure the maximum benefit to the most people right now, rather than planning for uh, our imminent migration to space. Or worse. Yeah, I mean, that ties into exactly what I was saying earlier. You know, I don't write with
2: the same wit and sense of humor as you do. But ultimately, my aim is just to, as I mentioned, just to accurately present what is written in the literature to the public. Mm. Because most people read this and think that is just wild and so implausible and
1: funny. <laughs> you know, it's like. I know. You don't have to say anything, and it takes care of itself. You know, right. I know, for me, it was just, describe the scene as it happened. And it's more outrageous than any fiction I could come up with, than any even, you know, don't look up kind of, you know, comedic movie. It's like, no, it's crazier. Let me tell you, it is crazier than that. Just spend some time with these people. They are crazier than that. (laughs) And so much richer than us at the same time is the part that's just... That's so funny to me. (laughs) Oh oh my God. Well, look, it's so good to meet you. And gosh, I feel like uh, uh, so many different feelings, but I feel so confirmed and not alone and happy that a younger, smarter scholar than myself is, you know, carrying this torch into the future in a way that's helping me make sense of these ridiculous nightmares. That when the nightmares become comedic, it's just such a feeling of relief it's so nice you know <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for that and for taking a few hits uh, taking some hits for the team um along the way it's just on twitter who gives a shit um or one article you know that's fine if it puts you on the map fine i don't care if it's wrong right <laughs> yeah, exactly. and you got your phd they can't hurt you anymore Yeah.
2: Yeah, And thank you also for your extraordinary work. I mean, the survival of the richest Mm. is just such an amazing, rich, extraordinary peak under the hood from somebody who has direct access to, you know, a number Mm. of these individuals. So had. (laughs) Had, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Those bridges have been burned
1: to the ground. (laughs) It's okay. Yeah. Along with anybody that was traveling on them. But whatever. It's okay. It was all it's all worth it. All worth it for the cause. Oh my gosh. All right. Well, I'm gonna let you go back to work and celebrate your PhD. It's such an honor to meet you. Please consider me a friend. I know you're close. You're relatively close, right? Where are you based now? Hanover, Germany. That's not that close, but <laughs> relatively it's no further than california at this point yeah. from new york so um if you come here please find me if you don't i will find you but please count on me as an ally and friend in any fight or party i'm uh, <laughs> i'm there all right awesome great it was fantastic uh, meeting you
2: and chatting about this important and kind of hilarious topic so thanks so much for
1: having me on and thank you for being on team human You can find out more about Emil's work by going to xriskology.com. The link is also in our show notes. You can find out more about Emil and all of our guests by going to teamhuman.fm, where you can also become a supporting member of the team. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.